You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Okay, so as usual, I have no idea how to start. Uh, is there anything you guys want to start with? Anything that like jumps out at you immediately? One thing to just mention right off the bat is that this is actually the the second movie that we've done uh, from Paul Schrader. Uh, we did one with Danny back uh, on Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, and that was the a very very different movie than this. But uh, <laughs> I, it's the uh, it's the first time since I've been following these that we've done uh, the same director multiple times. Uh, yeah, and, and and you're right. Very different film, um, and he's kind of got like an an interesting career. Um, I, I think what back in the '70s or whatever, he was sort of part of that that new wave of directors with like Spielberg and Coppola and De Palma and Scorsese and all that. Um, and they've all had this is kind of mean, but they've all had way more success than him since then. <laughs> yeah, like he insists on making like Stranger movies, and he doesn't make as many movies. I think he went like seven years between a movie at uh, at one point. Uh, he wrote, I know he wrote Bringing Out the Dead, but he has a lot of movies like that that are like right cult hits that never really found any mainstream following and i guess this is sort of like one of those mm-hmm. and uh well one of the things about schrader that that causes that is that i think when he started his career he wasn't really interested in filmmaking as much as he was film writing and so he started most of his early career was all film criticism he wrote um he wrote for for America one of the one of the seminal books on on Ozu and Bresson, uh, which we had not had very much on the two of them, and they're now held in very high esteem, uh, very high esteem. But yeah, I think sort of because he went on this first criticism, and then even from there he went mostly to screenwriting before he started directing a lot of things. Um, that sort of left him uh, sort of on a weird edge of that the the, the film brats or whatever. You, want to call that uh that era yeah yeah and i th- i like what you say about uh more interested in the writing and that kind of fits here because this was adapted uh from a novel i believe mm-hmm. um and in fact at one point um one of the characters even says to someone else about the conspiracy that he's positing that that kind of thing only happens in books which <laughs> i hope is a line from the book uh it'd be nice and self-aware and uh that's kind of for me the big thing of this about this movie i'm just gonna jump right into like criticism of the ending a little bit um mm-hmm. i don't like how explicit his paranoia was made I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of realized about halfway through, I thought, you know what? This is starting to feel like they're setting us up for this is all in his head. Um, and I was interested in that, and I like that. Uh, but by the end, you got the narrator, Willem Dafoe, who's kind of a weird choice for a narrator, um, basically explicitly telling us all that rather right. than leaving it unspoken. Um, I don't know. Am I being too critical there, or do you think that maybe there was a more elegant way to do that? I think the interesting – I think you're right, first of all, about Willem Dafoe where you never cast Willem Dafoe for a voice. You cast him for the face. Right, <laughs> right. It's interesting. Right. Like he's got amazing expressions. I agree with that, yeah. If he's going to be a narrator, you think he'd do more narration. But he like shows up every 30 minutes for like a line or two. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not really narration. And even yeah. then, he's usually on the phone uh, when he shows up actually not doing the narration. He's just on the phone and you, you can't – 
it, he's the, he's a he's a fine voice, and you can kind of tell who he is because he's got like kind of growl. But uh, <laughs> it is it is I I agree that it's a strange. But voice. yeah, I mean I mean when I watched it, I saw his name on the cast list, and then I was just like, where is this guy? Like, <laughs> didn't recognize his voice at first, and then I was like, are they not using him? Or but I saw him eventually. Yeah. After the opening, I thought, is this going to be some weird thing where he's just the narrator and yeah. you never even see him? And then you see him and I'm like, okay, well, this is strange. And then I think, okay, well, maybe now they're done with the narration. And then like 20 minutes later, he comes in for like one more line. And I'm like, right. what, what on earth is this? It's all over the place. <laughs> Although having a narrator who's in the film kind of makes it feel like a true crime story. Yeah, and I think um, if you look at Trader's other work, like I said, he wrote a lot on Robert Bresson, the great French director, and one of the main things that he seemed to take away from him was the idea of these sort of unusual styles of narration and, and voiceovers. Bresson really had this way of, you know, characters would narrate to you everything that they're thinking, but still you would know nothing about them, you know, because they're just projecting something. And so I think there's some of that in, uh, in play here, you know, um, with the narration just being very, like, telling you telling you the facts simpler than you think they should be or things like that but i didn't find it to be as complex as you know some of his his better stuff obviously his writing and taxi driver and things like that uh because it is based on a novel that often makes for i think i think uh movies based on novels often make for good acting showcases because you have Mm -hmm. so much of the kind of inner turmoil especially in a novel like this that the actor has to make explicit and you also get lots of little, I think, plot problems because you get lots of little mm-hmm. vi- vignettes that are disconnected from the main story because novels, they go off in all sorts of little directions like that and they set the mood with little stories and events and they kind of come back to the, the main plot line. And I feel like that doesn't really work as well on screen where you need a lot more narrative momentum. And so it feels like there are all these little stories that sort of give us a little bit of background, but you're also wondering like, dude, like there's apparently this big conspiracy going on in the background <laughs> and you're like talking about your tooth or whatever. And I know there's a lot of symbolism there, but I think you kind of see that in the awards that the film was nominated for too, because I think Nolte was nominated for an Oscar mm-hmm. and Coburn won, I think, for Best Supporting Actor, which was a little surprising. Yeah. But I guess that's what happens when you take a, a novel that probably has a lot of kind of inner dialogue and you right. tell the actors to put it out there. Right, and I think one of the um, one of the interesting things about um, about the acting specifically in the movie that um, that I think the movie does really well is just in terms of the casting of it, in terms of finding people whose faces are really weathered, and, <laughs> and you know everyone in the movie sort of just has this look as if they're you know they're you feel everyone getting older and you feel everyone getting, you know, sort of a little more insane just because of the way that they look, just because their bodies are aging. And so I, I think that uh, plays a big part into, into, you know, uh, Nolte's performance is that you always see his, his wrinkles. You always <laughs> see them uh, like on screen and they like play a character in it. So Yeah. And his voice in particular, he sounded like Michael mm-hmm. Madsen in this thing. Like he just sounds beat down by life. Uh, I don't know if it's a compliment to say that Nick Nolte is really good at playing beaten down by life, but, <laughs> but he is right. Mm-hmm. I think you're also right about the, um, the ending narration where the closest analogy I could think of is if they ended American psycho with a narration <laughs> that directly said, and he went on that it was all in his head. Ah, <laughs> I probably shouldn't spoil. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's something there. But uh, but that kind of narration where it would kind of ruin one of the questions you're left with the movie um, when it was so direct. And I like that part of the movie a lot. I, at first I thought, OK, well, this is going to be a pretty mediocre murder mystery. Um, you know, it's kind of straightforward. There aren't that many angles involved. Um, but when I start to realize that maybe 
uh, he's imagining it or finding connections where they don't exist. I got a little more interested. And when you look at it that way, a lot of stuff looks really interesting in retrospect because I was making some notes during the film just in case, you know, anything occurred to me while I was watching it. And the first one of the first notes I made was that he looks totally out of control of his life until he starts investigating the murder. And then he suddenly seems really savvy and really in control. And I think, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so this is one of those stories where, you know, this guy's life is a mess, but he's really good at this one thing. That's almost a trope at this point, right? Like, Mm -hmm. at the expense of everything else in your life, you're really good at your job, especially when your job is, like, solving crimes or whatever. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I I, I know what I'm dealing with now. Um, And now, looked at in retrospect, you realize that that's a coping mechanism. He feels in control because, you know, he's in a position of authority, but it's imagined. He's not actually investigating a real thing. He's imagining it because it allows him to feel in control. Mm -hmm. Right. The the one thing, I I have a lot of questions about this movie, more than most, because, like, the William William Dafoe thing where you're talking about where um, he starts investigating and he starts feeling control, part of that is only uh, only happens because other people kind of agree with him, specifically William Dafoe's character, where I I thought he was actually, like, actively misleading his brother because he says that I think your initial – I thought your initial summation or whatever of the situation was correct. Um, And he actually convinces him – like, because he was starting to go away. Like, he was starting to say, maybe I'm just uh, going down this for no reason. And he's like, no, I I think you're actually right about this. And he brings it back into him. I thought that maybe there was something going on where – Willem Dafoe was actually misleading uh, his brother for some reason. Yeah, it does seem like that. And maybe that's actually a failure of performance because I feel like the actual character is written, Willem Dafoe's character, which uh, – what's, what's the guy's name? I can't even remember his name. We, they mention it so rarely. But whatever his uh, character Rolfie. Wolfie? Rolfie. 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 Oh, good lord. That's even a weirder <laughs> name than Willem. Okay. Yeah, he, I think he's written as, like, the level-headed one who got out of this terrible situation and, you know, had a normal life, you know, in spite of it all. And – as played on the screen, it doesn't really come off that way, right? It, it's kind of the way you're saying is that, like, he kind of eggs him on a little bit, and it's not really clear what side he's on. Um, it's certainly bad advice, put it that way. And now that you mention that, looking back, I think that was around the point in the movie where he kind of started to get his crap together. Like, I, I, I do like what he said. Uh, this is kind of in contrast with the conspiracy stuff he egged on. He said, you know, he said it explicitly, you're focusing on these big problems to avoid your day-to-day problems. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really good, because that's kind of what's going on with Nolte, and I think it makes sense emotionally, because day-to-day problems are the kind of things that are going to reflect our personality more, right? The thing, kind of things we mm-hmm. neglect, the kind of things we prioritize day in and day out. So, you know, he puts off the toothache, and he's constantly talking about this lawyer he's going to go to one day to get his custody situation in order, and whether or not that's a good idea... It seems like the lawyer in Concord, which he keeps mentioning, is like this metaphor for all the things I'm going to do when I have time and all the things I'm going to do when my life is under control that you never end up doing, right? And he finally starts to actually do that. He's, he's, you know, on the verge of getting his tooth fixed, and he's finally talking to the lawyer again, whether it's a good idea or not. And he's actually starting to focus on the things in front of him rather than these, you know, grand problems that he's imagining. And then his brother sort of says, uh, never mind. You might be right after all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have just about like a bunch of questions, so I'm just going to probably shoot him off. Yeah, so, uh, go for it. Go for it. So obviously the toothache is a, is a repeating thing, and except for the eventual ripping out of the tooth, I didn't get much from that except for the fact that it's constantly kind of driving him crazy a little bit. I wasn't sure if there's another layer that I'm missing about the toothache, and I just felt it just felt like there was something missing from it, and I'm not sure if that was just me. I'm going to guess that it was more 
uh, layered in the book, and yeah. that it was sort of given short shrift here. But the only thing I really came up with is that you know the title "Affliction" just refers to a few different things. There's the actual aching of the tooth. There's the general state of his life, and then there's sort of the disease of temper uh, that he gets from his father that's passed on. It's like the whole family is afflicted with it. It's like hereditary or something. But I will say that if nothing else, the scene where he removes the tooth probably single-handedly got him that Oscar nomination. <laughs> yeah, because he's beat red and like tearing up, and it's just it's a really good moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I I definitely thought as far as as far as the the tooth goes to me it seemed mostly just like it was his you know it was both a physical manifestation of the problems that he was having but it was also something that he imposed on himself you know, physically you know he mm. moved the tooth as if it was going to solve the problems he was it was a real problem that he had but he thought okay if I fix this problem then the other problems are fixed he just sort of it grows as everything else grows and then he tries to pull it as if it would stop everything else from growing and that then that just doesn't happen because that was just a delusion so one of the scenes i didn't like was when he was in a bar and someone happened to be telling a story about his father that was a pretty inconsequential story and just did not feel genuine it did not feel like that's actual story you just tell in a bar and like oh hey the, the, the kid that's you know was affected by the story is in here it's just a really boring story it's not when you actually gather people around and you tell unless you like you know weave it into this bigger narrative which it didn't seem like he was doing and so that that scene just kind of bugged me it's like maybe that was another one of the things where it was in the book there was a better reason for right. it. it was back and forth in general, like this, this is a movie about you know sort of a small town community. So I think finding the right balance between you know everyone knows each other and everyone talks to each other, and you know everyone is talking about the main characters all the time is is a difficult thing. You know to weave in that natural sort of a feeling of a of a community and the driving force of a of a plot, or in this case, you know the like the plot of uh, watching his psychology develop. Yeah, that was the low-tech version of you turn on the TV and the newscast is immediately talking about the thing you're already (laughs) talking about, you know? It's like I walk into a bar and the guy's telling a story about my past that informs my character development right now. Uh, I think you're right. I think it's another thing that probably was more explicit in the book because they come back to that that kind of story and that wood and the ice and everything a bunch of times. Uh, When they come back for the mother's funeral, Willem Dafoe and Nick Nolte, again, I'm just going to call them by their real names because that's easier <laughs> um they they actually end up shoveling again together which i noticed and at the mm-hmm. end with the big the big finale you could still i think uh my wife noticed that the pile of wood is still sitting there frozen basically looking exactly the same <laughs> so the idea being you know this is part of who they are right they chip at it and they fight against it but they, they don't actually change Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's a it's fine symbolism, but you're right. There's no good reason for it to be in the story. There's no one no good reason for someone to tell that story except for the symbolism it's going to give us later. Speaking mm-hmm. of the firewood chopping story, so when he's talking about the firewood chopping story with his brother, Rolfie says it didn't happen that way, and that Wade fell. And honestly, and he talked about Elborn, uh, which is uh, one of the things that actually informed me a little bit about the movie. Is I just started googling affliction, and I found this. Uh, there's this essay site that, you know, it's one of those where you get to cheat and you like, you give them money and they write an essay about whatever you want. <laughs> and it was about the book. And it was actually, ooh, great. A little, a little summary of the book, sort of. And so they mentioned uh, apparently uh, Wade and Rolfie have two brothers that died in Vietnam. One of them was Elborn. He just said, right, exactly. He's like, you'll go have to unbury or bury or dig him up from Vietnam or whatever. And so he had two brothers and he talked about Elborn. He said, I, I thought that was Elborn. But Wade did go to the hospital 
because he said he did go to the hospital for uh, the broken arm, but that it happened with Elborn. So was the implication that Elborn did it to uh, Wade or that this was just a different time and that Wade fell a different time and he combined the stories like he saw Elborn get hit with the bottle or I did not get that scene. Like, I don't understand what the significance of the story was when Rolf is saying was that happened except for some sort of vague Wade kind of puts things together incorrectly sometimes. But honestly, from the movie alone, I was unable to parse that scene, even though I tried very hard. All I got from it was, oh, yeah, he um, he has a tendency to sort of misremember things, put right. them together in a way, try to construct a narrative for himself that makes more sense or is more psychologically comforting to him. Uh, right. I, I would imagine that that was supposed to do more than just that, though, but I don't know what else it would be. That's the thing is he still went – he went to the hospital. So something happened to him and it happened around the same time that something happened with Elborn. So Elborn was the one that got his – happened to also get his arm broken. And that just seems weird to me. So at that point, I was strongly suspicious at this point that Rolfi was specifically trying to get his <laughs> brother to do something crazy because there was all these times where he, uh, he egged him on. He was telling him that the story was incorrect to like kind of confuse him when like, the pieces fit like – Wade's story version of the story makes more sense. It's more parsimonious. Where the Rolfi's version, it had have to have two similar things have to happen in two different circumstances, and that just seems strange. And then, but apparently at the end, it just that is what happened. I don't know. It was just odd. Yeah. By the way, what's up with these names? Rol- Elborn, Rolfi, <laughs> Rol- or is it Rolf? Yeah. Like Rolf. Although I did notice, uh, I'm looking at the cast here, and the guy who played younger Wade was Nick Nolte's real son. Uh. Whose name is Brawley? So the, oh wow, <laughs> all the names are weird here. Um, Brawley Nolte. Brawley Nolte. Yeah, but I I think back to the the brothers' sort of manipulation, if it is or isn't a manipulation, is just that we really don't have enough information about him. So I mean, in that sense, it could be made specifically to to make you just sort of have this inkling wonder if this this guy just you know messing with them. But we really we don't see him very much. We only hear him as this sort of narrator and as a narrator he's pretty bluntly stating things that happened it's not we have no information on which to judge his uh on which to judge his narration but the but the images so it's it's tough to say with how little he's there whether or not he's he's doing something but i think the idea that he would cause you to be like oh no he's not you know there's something off here is you know to the movie's testament really my inclination is that it was more a mistake of tone than anything deliberate. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we're supposed to be questioning his motives. I really don't. Just because there's so little there to do it, there's just one big uh, problem. So I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe maybe uh, they didn't make it explicit enough, but I feel like they probably just did that by mistake, if I had to guess. <laughs> maybe it's just Willem Dafoe looking so freaking sinister <laughs> all the time that if he says anything even a little off, we're like, he's up to something. Speaking of that, you mentioned before where um, their faces speak a lot. It's interesting because I, I actually read the screenplay on this one as well, and all there's there are so many notes about what their facial expressions should be. Um, mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Rolfi, and I have one written down: is Rolfi Whitehouse, thirty-eight, drives his four-door Toyota West through Massachusetts towards New Hampshire. His face bespeaks tolerance, objectivity, in short, education. It is also Wade's face, which is an interesting thing. Like yeah. it's, I'm trying to figure out how you contort your face to bespeak <laughs> tolerance and objectivity and education. Uh, and also, I, there's also Wade's face, which honestly, they don't look that alike. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got he has a sharp face, and Nick Nolte has kind of like a blunt face. Right. So they... Well, plus, like, the whole point is that they have totally different temperaments. So if he's supposed to, Mm -hmm. if space is supposed to convey all these things, how can he have the same face as the guy who's not supposed to convey any of them? Right. That, uh, the information about the screenplay is pretty funny, and I think it 
it actually makes a lot of sense uh, with with what I know about Schrader. So, it's oh, good, did he write it's this? A good fact. Yeah, he actually, he wrote the screenplay for it. Yeah, I didn't even look at the top of this stupid screenplay. <laughs> well, you, you don't have time to be reading who wrote it. You need to read the actual right. thing. Right. Right. Yeah, I did. Like, I don't know if this was deliberate, but I noticed there were just a ton of shots of like signs and rules on signs. Um, and I kept thinking this is going to pay off or something or end up being a theme. <laughs> and then I'm not sure it ever really did. Uh. But they just kept focusing on the signs, and I kept looking for some sort of way for that to kind of come around. And it just feels like so many other things in the movie where I feel like it's building towards something, and then it turns out it's not. Right. And 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 that could be, you know, part of an intended point about it in the same way that we get – you get you get these little narratives that you want to piece together that – similar to uh, Wade's character. He's he's finding all these little pieces that he wants to put, put together into a cohesive story, but it just doesn't – it just doesn't happen. There's just not enough there. So he – you know, takes a jump at something and ends up being completely wrong. I think there's a lot to do with sort of catching the fragments and daring you to make a story out of something that's not there. Yeah, and that is, I mean, I would love to give credit to the author and say that that's like a meta-commentary because creating something out of something that's not there is sort of the whole theme of the movie. Um, And there are some other hints looking back that i got to give it a little more credit for that seem a little bit like foreshadowing. Like, even the fact that he's kind of suspicious of this real estate deal, which is not really fleshed out. Like, at the time, (laughs) we're not really sure what's going on, right? It's almost like they expect, oh, well, if you're buying property, you're doing something evil, because we've been conditioned by movies to think that anyone (laughs) buying up property is being terrible. And that's a very kind of manufactured movie-like conceit, right? It's like a northeastern Chinatown or something. And so it kind of makes sense that he would latch on to something like that when it's not really there. And something else I didn't notice that I got to give my wife credit for noticing is that both of the people he thinks are bad guys are named Gordon, uh, Gordon <laughs> Riviere and Mel Gordon, which is just like another little kind of connection that he sort of, oh, right. they're both named Gordon and I'm find- looking for patterns, so both <laughs> the Gordons are evil. You know, like everything just yeah. feels kind of clumsily slapped together on his end, and you don't really start to realize it until the second half of the film. Right. Yeah, the the whole real estate plot just seemed very like awkwardly shoehorned into there because it it feels like you know that would fit very well into into something you know a movie about a community and caring about keeping the community or something like that. But it was you know he didn't care very much for the community at all. It was his, it was his daughter and it was the people uh, the other specific people that he cared for. It wasn't he didn't have much reason or didn't give us much reason to think that he would care about some real estate idea. It's not much of a community to begin with. So when mm-hmm. I hear that, you know, he built some resort, I'm like, all right, well, cool. It, it was, Sounds fun. It doesn't look like a particularly nice place to live. I don't really feel like <laughs> we're losing a whole lot, which I guess was the point, yeah. right? Like it's not, it's the end of his life as he knows it, but in the broad scheme of things, nothing particularly terrible or weird is going on. Right. It's just his life that's falling apart, which by the, I do have to give him a lot of credit for those first couple scenes though, because Maybe it's just cheap. It's really easy to do the whole single parent, you know, divorce is ugly, the kid doesn't like me, the sad desperation of the single father trying to manufacture memories for his children that they're really not into. <laughs> like, it's a it's low-hanging fruit, but it does a really good job of just establishing him as totally not cut out for this. Mm-hmm. And giving sympathy, because you feel bad for him. Like, he's, like, especially when there's the kind of, like, the, to be honest, like, dim dumb father trying to trying to do that and it's so obvious and desperate where they're usually so hidden right. with their um with the, the motivations but it's just so out of control and it's like he wants it so badly and he's not and you don't you don't blame him he this is not something he's going after uh that's actually you know superficial he wants his daughter to love him and he just wants to latch onto that but he's doing it in such a poor way <laughs> i i do want to say that Whatever else the film is clumsy about, it's really good with those early scenes because, like like you say, Slappy, he 
it, they're trying to make us feel sympathy for him. You know, that's it, short of giving him a dog, uh, <laughs> putting him in a putting him in that situation is like the easiest way to get us to feel sympathy. But if you kind of rewatch those scenes, uh, knowing the ending, they look totally different because he's like he's like snapping at her a little bit and there's like this anger just underneath the surface that things are not going the way he wants and that the kid's ungrateful. And when you compare them to the scenes, the flashbacks with his dad, you actually realize that you can see the ending, the non-sympathetic stuff just beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you see that when he, uh, he goes after his, um, his ex-wife's new husband and he says, but he's like, I didn't hit him and I didn't hit anybody. Right. I, you know, and he just, he keeps going by yeah, cause he, he's constantly in tension with, he doesn't want to be violent, but that's his first reaction. Right. Uh, but he's, he really doesn't. And then I guess, like, the problem is his reaction to not wanting to be violent is kind of anger, which kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spills right. itself. Yeah, when he says, I didn't hit him, like, you can tell he's sort of, he's saying it to himself. He's like, right. look, uh, it's very important yeah. to his psychological identity that he not be that his he father. Do that. Yeah. And as long as he doesn't cross that line, he can continue to believe that he's not like his father. Right. right, because you know, at that point, there's very, there's very little different between him hitting him and him nodding him, not hitting him in turn, like outside of himself, because everything is there, all of the anger is there, all of the emotion is there for him to do it. It's just he he held him back from doing the physical thing. Right. To him, that's a huge bright red line. To everyone else, right. they still feel pretty threatened and they're not sure if he's going to hit him, so they don't really care. He's right. still a loose cannon. And that happens again in the bar where he grabs the guy um, at the at the bar and like kind of throws him down, but he doesn't like hit him, and he's like, hey, so, but then after right after he's like, I it's okay, I didn't hurt him. And the funny thing is, I don't think this is what we're supposed to think at all. But part of me almost thought like it's almost worse because his father, who did these terrible things but spread them out over decades, he never had the big blowout where he hit someone, killed them, and then burned a barn down. Because it's almost <laughs> like he let his anger out little by little and right. kind of poisoned the people around him. Whereas, yeah, Wade Whitehouse tries to bottle it up so he's not like his father, and it doesn't really lead to a better outcome. It leads to him being better most of his life and then exploding all at once at the end instead. Which I don't know if, I don't know if that's better or not exactly. <laughs> you know, he was trying to be better. He actually did, his father doesn't seem to have done any one thing that was worse than what Wade did. He just did really bad things consistently throughout his life, but he never killed any one and burned a building down either because he just let his anger out all the time right and it's tough to it's tough to evaluate that in terms of like you know practical consequences and you probably shouldn't be doing that because it's so you know his father's just this sort of constant trickle of poison whereas wade just grew into this one event but there's he's a bomb yeah. yeah but who knows what you know what the aftershocks of that would be for everyone that he knew uh and that and that cared about him so it's it's a really uh you know they're both really messed up and you know you can't really say that one is better than the other just because of you know the actions that they did yeah, I mean, he's certainly making a more noble effort. He recognizes his own failings a bit more. Uh, I did like the very end where they sort of show the shot looking like old film, sort of like one of his flashbacks, looking from inside the building as the fire is put out. Kind of like he's a ghost in his own house, you know, mm-hmm. looking out at the rest of the world. And I, I got to give him a lot of credit. I don't know, this is 1997, so this could have been CGI, but I don't think it was. The barn on fire when he's sitting in the mm. kitchen in the background. Yeah, I did notice that. It looked like a practical effect, in which case they probably only had a one or two takes. Right, that was the thing. That was the thing that I noticed, and and that also, you know, it it got started very like uh, it seemed like it was a continued effect from the previous shot. So they really had to coordinate that well, and and uh, and the fact that the truck then lit on fire mid scene too. That was a it was a bit of a uh, like show offy behavior, but I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I hope you're ready to act, Nick Nolte, because you yeah. get like one <laughs> shot at this. I uh, I like what uh, I think was Brendan said a few minutes ago about sort of what he leaves behind after he burns everything down. Like, what are the consequences long term? And I definitely thought it was meaningful that uh, Rolf or Rolfie or however you say it, his last words were "I continue," and then he just sort of trailed off. Um, because if you had to pick like one thing that this is really about, it's not really about this one man's self-deception. It's about sort of the legacy, like I said earlier, the hereditary anger, you know, the way that one generation kind of breaks right. the next or, or makes it very hard for the next not to go wrong in a certain way. And so I kind of thought that you can look back and say that, you know, obviously affliction is about that. It's about passing that temper on and, uh, kind of ruining your children potentially. And, if you wanted to, you could say that Rolf was maybe the main character in a way, because he's the one who gets out, right? All this happens, the big brother takes the brunt of it, and how many times do you hear that in both real-life stories and fictional ones where if there's an abusive father, the older children will sort of uh, take take the lead and protect the younger ones, you know, provoke the abusive parent. Um, I know this is getting pretty heavy, but <laughs> that, is a, that is a theme that comes up a lot, is that they sort of become like little protectors in the hopes that the younger children will sort of get out alive. And that's what happens here. So in a way, as messed up as he is, he's sort of a martyr. He sort of does this for his little brother, you know, to get out. Right, and they, they at, at one uh, particular point, sort of set that up from the very beginning, of course, when he's doing, when he's being uh, the crossing guard, and he's just standing there for a while with his arms held out and his head tilted to the side, and <laughs> which, like, everyone is confused by it, and it sort of sets up his psychology, but then, again, this is also very obvious, uh, like, uh, like visual symbolism. Well, I, I think he's actually talking about a uh, the crucifix. Like he's talking about where his arms are actually out to the side and his head slightly tilted uh, in the uh, yeah. classical thing where it's like his actual head is uh, going down. I, I didn't realize that when I said martyr, but yeah, I guess that does kind of fit pretty well. Um, I, if you want, there's, there's definitely evidence for him as martyr uh, in, mm-hmm. in this movie, yeah. I completely agree about the, uh, the important story that I came up with was the story of Rolfi. Uh, or Rolf, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> don't bother, like yeah. Uh, so he kind of, he looks at, I don't know, maybe as a way to avoid what the violence he saw, but he looks at the situation he's in in a very detached way. And because he talks about how he's, he's a student of history. And so he seems to be looking at the history of violence as a branch of a family tree uh, that he sees end with himself because his brothers are, his father's dead. His brothers are all dead, and he specifically talks about how he detached himself from the world, um, and that's the only way that uh, men like him can like not afflict the women that love them uh, with violence is he's detached, and he sees himself as the culmination, as the final point of this long kind of like tree of like, uh, oh, yeah. fathers and sons beating them. And where he's the, he is the end point, at least of his branch. Now, at some point, there's probably another branch that you know, goes on and continues, but uh, as far as he can tell back through his um, uh, father, at least, um, he, it ends with him. There is no more violence coming from that branch of the tree, and he has to kind of like continue his life not being violent. Well, do you think that means that he's not going to have a family? Because they don't mention any family, and he's paying taxes on this house he's not using, and everything sort of pointed to me to, to what you're saying being more literal. Like, I'm not going to have kids. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he is, yeah. Right, which actually makes uh, Wade's sacrifice really sad because he does this so that this guy can go on and have a normal life, and he sort of doesn't then. Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, I mean, that's you know very implicit in, in the words that he uses at the end. He sits, he continues. It's not like he he does anything. You know, it's not like he's he says like he survived or he's better now. He just 
keeps going. Uh, and I like that uh, Slappy mentioned uh, the women in their lives particularly, because that's a theme that comes up not probably ex- not as explicitly as it should have. There are only, only a couple scenes that touch on it. Uh, right. you, you do get Wade's ex-wife saying, you know, a woman like that talking about uh, his father's his father's wife who passes away, saying, you know, she lived their entire lives with the sound off and then it's over. Um, and she just kind of sits there in silence, just falling in love with the wrong guy and then just standing by him forever uh, as he mistreats her. Um, she gets out. And by the way, there's another part of the theme of kind of getting out of this cycle. His, his ex-wife gets out uh, and you kind of get the impression his daughter's going to get out, too. And uh, the girlfriend uh, gets out as well after he she sees the salt in the hand is kind of like the breaking point for her, where she sees um, she sees uh, Wade's father uh, lick salt off his hand before drinking, which is something that uh, Wade was shown to do a few times. And so she kind of puts together where it seems like she was in denial a lot of the time, and that was kind of the thing where, all right, now you kind of exactly like know where it's going because you think right. you can change a person for a long time, but then you see the actual effect and that exact habit. Um, Oh, and speaking of habits, uh, I didn't notice this, but uh, my girlfriend who was watching also did. When there's the fire burning, uh, the, the uh, burns burning scene, uh, he drinks out of a glass, which he's never done before. And that's only what mm. his father does. And before then, he just takes it straight from a bottle and uh, cans and whatnot. But then he just kind of sits there. I mean, he looks like his father as he's doing it, too. That's nice. I didn't notice either of those things. Yeah. And I, it, that, that part's really sad because you can see, you know, Sissy Spacek did a really good job. Um, and she's constantly doing what any good partner would do, which she's sort of just trying to pull him towards his better habits and away from his bad ones because she sort of sees them. She's not, like, blind to this, right? She's she's blind to whether or not she can actually pull him out of the tailspin, and maybe she could have, right? Maybe it was a valiant try. But she's kind of telling him, like, don't bother with the custody thing so much and, you know, just just go to work and just do your job. And she, But she's also kind of halfway between because he says, let's get married, and she's like, oh, well, let's not go that far. Uh, I'm not really sure if that's a good idea either because she's, she's, like, right in between the whole time, and I think you're right. She eventually just makes up her mind, like, like, I can't fix this guy. Mm-hmm. That's a very sympathetic scene when he asks her, like, meekly to marry him because he's just like, I'm just asking you to think about it, you know, not right now, but uh, just something to keep on your mind. And he's, he's a very, like, you know, touching and emotional guy, even though he's, he's, he tries to deny his emotions as much as he can, I guess. I'm not sure if it's because he's uncomfortable with his emotions or if he sees emotions as a weakness or it's a revolt against his father for being over-emotional. Like, I'm not sure what... What direction he's taking in that one? I think at that point, he's had two marriages. He's a dog that's been hit on the nose a few times. So he's sort of like, he's a little (laughs) gun-shy about this whole thing. That reminds me, I knew a guy who used to work with my dad, and he was like the most serious, grown-up type guy you could ever imagine. And he just got to talking about how uh, he and his wife got married one day, and it was perfect because everything I knew about that guy said, you know, like I said, he's very grown up. And he said, uh, well, one day we just sat down and I said, hey, do you think we should get married? And we just talked about it for like (laughs) 10 minutes. And I said, that's perfect. You know, that's exactly what I would have jokingly guessed about you Mm -hmm. and so that's kind (laughs) of what happens here which is like this guy who has no reason to be particularly rosy or optimistic or romantic about something like marriage kind of isn't exactly with her either he's sort of just like hey you know maybe this is a good idea what do you think you know very chastened and nervous about it and not even sure if it's a good idea as he's asking because he's not going to go into that what do they, they say second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience and you're talking about the 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 line where it's like a dog getting hit in the nose too many times. I really like the for some reason the delivery stood out a lot where he talks about uh, how he's gonna bite someday and then uh, but he hasn't he hasn't he hasn't bitten yet uh, but he's growled a bit and he the delivery on that line is he does a really good job on that. Uh, he actually almost literally growls it right? right right exactly yeah 
Yeah, so a, a few people in the various threads where we posted the podcast have asked that we do a sort of 1 through 10 or 1 through 5 score uh, either. Or you can do number letter grades. I don't care. Do whatever you want. <laughs> you can you can pick a color that you feel best represents your feelings about the movie. Do whatever you want. But we need to give them some sort of rating. So Cool. Can we do something like, I give it a 3 out of 5, but a, a 9 out of 10. A nine, 3 out of 5, <laughs> 9 out of 10 with like a purplish hue, maybe, sort of saturated. I think it had plenty of good fodder, and it was a good thing to talk about, but as an actual movie, yeah, I go like two and a half out of five, or five out of ten, or however however you want to scale it. I think it's a decent movie, but there are just so many things that don't quite add up, or never really seen through, or a little incoherent, and I really think that when you do a good novel-to-film adaptation, you need to strip away the extra little vignettes and have a bit more narrative focus, uh, and I don't think it really did that. Uh, I mean, I came down probably somewhere between a two and three out of five. Uh, I don't tend to take ratings very seriously, but that's about where I feel right now. Uh, I'm feeling somewhere between a six and a seven. Um, the story <laughs> should have hit me harder, uh, considering it was kind of relevant to me. But uh, uh, the acting and delivery are really strong. But the the delivery of the story was a bit clumsy. Um, I didn't. It was another one of those films where the thoughts that it inspired were more interesting than the film to be honest, but I did enjoy my time with it because of that, but I can't give the film credit for that. That's just me being awesome. I give myself <laughs> Yeah. What do you give yourself in this instance? <laughs> right. Yeah. My thoughts, 10 out of 10. Wow them in the end. You got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wow them in the end. And you've got a hit.